Hey, this is Abby Wamba, and this is Why We Laugh. It's a podcast about why we laugh. We're talking to comedians about stuff like joke mechanics. We're talking to scientists about stuff like science mechanics. We're talking to regular mechanics about why they laugh, because that's what we're talking to everybody about. What makes people laugh and why? We're figuring it out. Shoot, that's what Viper Biglia says. (sighs) Maybe you should just listen to that podcast. He has such a concise intro. Welcome to another episode of Why We Laugh. Today, I'm having a conversation with my friend, Dr. Emily Anhalt. Dr. Anhalt is a clinical psychologist and the co-founder of COA. Uh, COA is a gym for mental health. They also provide one-to-one therapy options if you're in New York or California and soon more places. Don't wait to work on your mental health until something happens to you that's terrible. Work on it now because you have the foresight to know that terrible things will happen to you. <laughs> um This is really fun to talk to Emily. She's so funny. We met working at an adult summer camp together. So I got to know Emily as a funny, playful person who's easy to connect to before I got to know that she is a uh, genius psychologist who is changing the way that people think about mental health. We're going to talk about laughter and connecting through laughter and and how different brains make different connections for jokes. And we're going to get right into playing it after this message from our sponsor, Voicemail, and this sponsored segment, DIY Inflammatory Opinions. Are you listening to this podcast thinking, hey, I like to talk, and I like to ask interesting people questions. Maybe I should start a podcast. (laughs) Well, don't get ahead of yourself. There are plenty of podcasts, and we don't need any more. Why not start out with a voicemail? Voicemails are 90% more likely to reach their intended audience, and there's usually no editing involved. Start with a voicemail. I wish I had. You'll thank me later. We have with us today one of our favorite guests in the studio over in the craft corner, Rachel. What are you going to show us how to make today? Oh, Dawn, thank you so much for having me back on the show. You know I love being here. Uh, Today I'm going to show you how to make your own inflammatory opinions right there at home. Let me get this straight. People are making these. People are making these inflammatory opinions at home. Yes, that's right. You know, I always see people with these inflammatory opinions and I think, where? Did they get those? Mm -hmm. And you say they're making them at home. Yes, making them right there at home. And I'll show you how right now. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Yes, I'm ready. All right. So uh, the first thing I'm going to need you to do is to think back and find a memory of a time that you unintentionally hurt someone. Oh, that doesn't feel good. No, I don't want to. Oh, I know. But just hang on to it um, because, you know, I promise you it's going to get better. Uh, And if at the very least it doesn't get better, it'll stay uh, just as bad, but it'll be more destructive. Um, All right. And what you want here is to find the root of defensiveness and sort of just grab it by that root Oh, is this it? it Am I holding it the right place? Why don't you go ahead and describe to me what you're feeling? Um, All right. Well, uh, it feels like I was just kidding. Mm -hmm. How could that have hurt anyway when I wasn't trying to hurt anyone? Uh, You got it. 
ah, I feel like, hmm, I think that um, this whole PC culture thing is getting out of hand. Right. How do you know what my intentions were? You don't know me. I guess we can't really judge each other at all. We don't know anyone else's story, really, oh, do we? stop there. You've gone too far. You got to work it back in there a little oh, bit. Oh, all right. So work it back in like back this? Back to the part where uh, no one understands you. You don't want to get to the part where oh. um, no one understands anybody. That's too far. Oh, all right. That won't be inflammatory at all. Is this correct then? Yeah. Yeah, that looks right. You want to stay where you feel the most outraged and personally attacked for being told that you did something wrong. And then what you want to do is sort of call everyone over here. Over call to Call everyone over to look at this feeling mm-hmm. of outrage that you're having mm-hmm. so you don't have to apologize or change your behavior or anything, you know, for, mm-hmm. for that other thing that you did. You don't have to feel that, that other discomfort. It does feel bad, but but also good. Yes, much, much better than the discomfort I was feeling otherwise. Yes. You replace that discomfort with the outrage. Yes. Yeah, and then the final, the final sort of touch, the final little jojo, is that uh, you sort of cleave, cleave that into your personality. You decide it's a, it's a fundamental right Mm -hmm. for you to have done that, Um, and then there you have it. There you have an inflammatory opinion. Wow, all your own, uh, that um, that no one can take away from you, really. Well, that's it. I, you know, this is my own inflammatory opinion. I love it, Rich. I really love it. I can't believe I did it myself. Oh, my God. Hi. Hi. How are you? Uh, I'm pretty good. I miss you a lot. I miss you, too. How has your just general wellness and mental health been? <laughs> what, an, what an on-brand question. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's been okay. I think it's been, you know, peaks, peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys. How about you? About the same for sure. It's been quite a year, but you know, I'm making it work. Yeah. It seems like it's a good year uh, for you to do what you do. Yeah. Business is definitely great, (laughs) but you know, (laughs) sort of like, I don't know. It's like the people who clean up houses after crime scenes being excited about like a giant crime spree you know like (laughs) I'm grateful but also not happy about why like maybe it would be better if business wasn't booming but right exactly business is booming (laughs) totally (sighs) okay great can you introduce yourself Dr. yeah absolutely so hi everyone I am Dr. Emily Anhalt. I'm a clinical psychologist and grew up in Silicon Valley and thus have had an interest in the psychology of the entrepreneur for a long time. And I think what really interested me about that is that mental health in our culture tends to be really reactive. People are made to feel like they have to wait until their lives are falling apart to get any support. When really, I think people who are mostly doing fine are the ones who should immediately get started on working with their mental health so that they can maintain that feeling of things being fine and so that they are in a better position to support people who do need that support. So I have co-founded a company that is a mental health gym. It is figuring out what does a mental health push-up look like and how do you do one and how do you do them in community through therapist-led emotional fitness classes and therapy matchmaking. So that's what I do in my day job and the rest of the time, big fan of laughter, very pro laughter. I grew up in a household that was full of inappropriate jokes and the idea that, you know, humor can take care of a lot of things. So very grateful to be here. Can you tell me about a time you remember laughing really hard? Oh, great. Okay. So I'll pick the one that 
is camp related since that's where we met. Abby and I met at an adult summer camp, digital detox place where you had to check in your phone at the beginning of the weekend and spend the weekend just being a kid again. And it was a very powerful experience because we're sort of not given permission to reconnect with each other in nature the same way we used to be. And so we traveled all over the place together, including to North Carolina. And I remember one of the days that we were there, we were all on this blow up slide that was in the middle of a lake. <laughs> and we were taking turns telling our deepest, darkest secrets. And then as soon as we delivered the punchline, we would go down the slide before anybody could actually react to it. And God, I laughed so hard. I almost drowned at the bottom of the slide. <laughs> obviously as a therapist, hearing people's deepest, darkest secrets, that's like, you know, that's my porn. There's just nothing better. I'm a total voyeur. I want to know everything that people don't tell anyone else. And here I am sliding into the dark lake of a North Carolina summer camp with a bunch of amazing humans laughing my ass off. It was just magical. I think also we were naked. I think that's yeah. an important part of I this I forgot story. about that detail. <laughs> <laughs> this is like 100%. Nude. Bearing it all. Deepest. Yes. Bearing it all. <laughs> also, as a psychologist, like you got to listen to the deepest, darkest secrets, and then you didn't have to help anybody with them. This is why I love reality TV because <laughs> I love my job, but I got to tell you, listening to people's drama and then not being responsible for empathizing or fixing it is really good, like brain candy for me. Oh my God. So really that is like your dream scenario that people would just be like being close, sharing things about themselves and then immediately moving themselves <laughs> away from where you could <laughs> respond. Into a body of water. Oh my gosh. <laughs> One of my favorite things in the world is when couples are fighting on the street and I get to listen in to what they're fighting about. Oof, it's the best. And they don't even know that they have an enormous resource just standing by, not helping them. <laughs> Not helping them. Exactly. <laughs> Can you tell me about an early memory you have of making someone else laugh? Yeah. You know, I have to say a big part of my identity is making people laugh. And I'm not the kind of person, which I would say you are, who makes everyone laugh all the time. I have a specific kind of humor and you either get it or you don't. I'm not too concerned with the people who don't because I think I'm hilarious. I mean, me too, times- by the way, for the record, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> There are times that I'll say something in my head and just laugh because I'm like, God damn, I'm so hilarious and clever. So I enjoy myself. But I grew up in a household where humor was just quite a currency. You know, if you could make each other laugh, that was really big. And my dad and I in particular have very similar, very kind of crude, dirty sense of humor. But but with the idea that if it's not clever, it's not worth it right? If you're going to be crude, if you're going to be, you know, even a little offensive, it better be clever because otherwise you're just being an asshole. And so I really had to learn how to, you know, think quick on my feet. And, you know, there's a lot of punning and things like that. And so I have really clear memories of being young and making my dad laugh and feeling like, oh, this is what love feels like. Like uh, love feels like laughing with someone who delights in you. And that's a psychological truth too, that parents are supposed to be delighted by their children and children are supposed to feel that they delight their parents. And I think how that happened for me the most was when I could make my parents laugh. So that was always a, a beautiful moment. Oh, wow. I love that. Did you use humor when you were a kid outside of your house? Did you find yeah. out you were funny early? Not super early because I went to this little private school where everyone was very quiet and well-behaved and I was this crazy ADHD kid and I 
I had a hard go of it because of that. It wasn't the right environment for me, though I got a great education. I think I realized I was funny when I switched over to a public high school where there were a lot more people who, you know, kind of saw things the way I did. I found sort of my people in high school and just a lot of joking. And really, I think, you know, obviously you're no stranger to this idea, but being a yes and person is so important with humor. You know, this idea of like, when you say something, the other person has an opportunity to pick it up and take it farther with you and get somewhere together that neither of you could have gotten alone. And that's what's funny. Saying something and, and being met with, you know, no real response, it's just never going to have the same effect. So I found my yes and people where we took jokes way too far and went back and forth about the most ridiculous things. And there are also, you know, people with dirtier senses of humor willing to talk about penises and all the things that I really like to spend my day doing. <laughs> <laughs> I actually just watched you give a talk on play and you talked about the SM thing and you had you had different games throughout the session where you played with the audience. And at first you literally asked them to say one word and like 10 people did it. And, uh -huh. <laughs> and then as you went on, of course, everyone started participating. But one of my favorite things, I like ran to a notepad when this happened. Because I've been thinking about connection and laughter. And um, I read something that's like, if you're watching something funny, you're seven times more likely to laugh out loud if you're with someone else. Like if mm. someone else is physically there. Like that laughter isn't just like, an, it's not an involuntary thing a lot of the time. It's like to signal to someone else. It's communicative, yeah. Yeah. And when I was watching you give this presentation, the first biggest laugh that people gave was when you asked them to find a partner. And then the first person to talk was going to be the one with longer hair. Uh -huh. <laughs> and they turned to each other and everyone in the room started laughing, trying to figure out whose hair was longer or whatever. But it was just such a release because they were looking at someone else and they knew they were they were nervous or whatever and gonna engage with them. And there was just like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, laughter is also cathartic, I guess, in that way, right? Of like expressing that you're in a weird situation together and that both of you are okay. Like I think laughter can signal, hey, we're both okay. And so let's keep moving forward together. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see that a lot um, as a therapist? Should I say psychologist or therapist? What are the words? They're both true. <laughs> okay. They're both true. Yeah. Like, I mean, I nervous laugh before I do something that I'm scared about. I like on purpose, ask someone to listen to me while I'm like, ah, I'm so nervous. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. This is a really important part of therapy. And there are people who will tell you, you know, if someone is saying something defensively, you shouldn't laugh at it. And it's true that if someone's making a joke when what I really think they want to convey is something very serious, I'll say like, you know, you're saying that like it's funny, but I don't think it's funny to you. I think it's painful to you. But that's the exception. Way more often than not, I'm going to laugh with them. If someone's funny, it's funny. And I remember I picked my therapist based on the fact that in our first session, she laughed at something I said in a really authentic way. And I was like, okay, you see me, you can see me. And so this, this might work. And I remember several years into that therapy, I'm sitting in her waiting room and I hear her laugh at a different patient. And I was like, how dare you? Like, no, I'm the funny one. We've established that. You can't find anyone funny but me. And I caught myself, obviously. But I went in there and I said, hey, I just I have to admit to you that I had feelings about you laughing at this other person. And it led to this beautiful conversation about how in my family, me being the funny one was a really important part of my identity. 
my siblings are both hilarious too, but you know, I, I felt that I had some kind of special place in this world. And just that conversation in and of itself led to this beautiful understanding of how I position myself in the world. So yeah, laughter is super important. I definitely identify with that. I have had that feeling and been like, eh, there's no room for anyone else to be the, <laughs> the funnier one. I'm really glad that I got over that by the time I met you. Well, so I know I'm not supposed to do this because I'm the guest, but can I turn on you for a second? Because I also would love to know, as someone who I think doesn't struggle to get laughs very much because you're just naturally charming and funny and generous, by the way, I think part of what makes you so delightful is you don't seem to need to be the only person who people are enjoying and you will set others up. Like I felt like there were a lot of moments with you and I where you would sort of loft one up for me so that I could slam dunk it. And then we both thought we were hilarious, you know? So I'm curious, has that always been true for you or did you have to learn that at one point or another? Yeah. I I definitely learned first to be funny by putting other people down, like Mm -hmm. by, by like throwing bows. And that was actually coming out of, I was a really serious kid, like super serious. Like I only wore things that I bought at 10,000 villages, which was like, they like bought crafts from other countries and sold them for, I just only wore like tie dyed vests. I don't know. It was. And that in your mind is evidence of you being a really serious kid. I feel like that was your inner, oh, you no, know, because it was ethical. And I would like only read oh. books about like the Holocaust and slavery. And I was <laughs> like, if somebody got picked on in school, I would like, I don't know. I think I have an instinct to like belittle my childhood self, but I meant it. I was earnestly trying to do the right thing all the time, but I was a pain in the ass. I was like, Mm. and then I remember like being 11, maybe 10, 11 and doing a class project that everyone laughed at. And I was like, oh, you can just get them to like you like that. Mm. And, And then definitely I used my comic powers to to put down people I thought were doing the wrong thing or like that were mean to someone else or were mean to me. So the collaborative part, I think, happened a little later. But I did have a best friend I lived next door to who was also really funny and we played together that way. But mm. I realized at some point that I wanted to play with other people instead of against them. Oh, that's <laughs> a good way to put it. That is a huge mindset shift. So that makes sense. I remember doing a lot of putting people down too. I have kind of a sharp, sarcastic sense of humor too. And I have to say as a therapist, sometimes I end up being meaner than I meant to because Uh I cut a little deeper than maybe the person was ready for. So I feel like I have to be careful about that. And also sometimes I'm just mean, like we're all aggressive and Mm -hmm. humor is one of the places that I think our aggression can find space to, you know, express itself. It's definitely like a calculation I do when I have a joke that I'm like, is that a friendly joke or just a funny joke that's mean? Yeah. And is it funny enough to be mean for? That's my equation too. If something's really funny and really clever, then I think it's worth it. And I feel the same way when it's at my expense. If you put me down, but it's really funny or really clever, I will give you the props. Like no problem. I will take it. I am telling you, I love to be made fun of if it's really funny. I can just- We should do a roast of you. (laughs) We could do each other. That would be excellent. Oh my God. I just do. I just feel like it means that you actually love me if you can make a really good, insightful joke about me. I think so too. Because good humor is like a mix of intelligence and 
presence and, you know, knowing someone, the, those three things have to be there to make a really great joke. So I'm yeah. for it. Yeah. And also I think that there's a level of trust. I absolutely would not even say a really funny joke if it was going to hurt someone that couldn't take it or if it was unclear that I loved them or if they were insecure about that thing. But if it's someone that like I can trust to be able to handle it. And I feel the same way when I get made fun of. I'm like, they think I can take it. (laughs) Which helps me take it. I'm like, okay, I can take it because they thought I could. Right, right. That's really funny. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. And I appreciate the, what it sounds like was an intentional effort to listen to your internal dialogue before turning it on other people because not everyone does that. I will say another piece that's jumping in my mind is as a Jewish person, I feel like humor is a really important thing. Mm, mm -hmm. You know, like it's just a group of people who find themselves in all of these ridiculously horrific circumstances. And yet I think one of our kind of weapons against that is always being able to make fun of ourselves and others and find the humor in situations. So I get the sense that that was sort of passed down in my DNA in one way or another. I mean, I certainly draw lines to hard things in my life and times I got funnier or funnier on purpose and closed closed little rooms and turned them into jokes. Wow, what a great way to put it. (laughs) But I want I wondered too what your experience is professionally around that. I think that like anecdotally, anecdotal anecdotally. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) Funny people often had a lot of painful experiences, but Mm -hmm. but what's your professional opinion? (laughs) <laughs> I, you know, professionally, I would say that I'd expand that to say, I feel like all genius often has some root in mm-hmm. complicated experiences because ignorance is bliss. Like if you've never had to do any tough shit, then you get the benefit of not having to, you know, mm. make sense of it in whatever way you're going to. But that being said, I do hear people in my life who are comics or artists or whatever, and they're like, I can't get better because then I won't be talented anymore. Like if I'm not depressed, I won't be funny. Or if I move through my trauma, I won't make beautiful art. And like, honestly, to me, it sounds like a campaign that big depression put on at some Mm -hmm. point to convince people not to get better. I just don't think it's true. I think some of our genius springs from tough places, but moving through those tough things only gives us more tools and more ability to create beautiful things for the world. And and I agree. And it's also why I try to let <laughs> okay. my children suffer a little, you know, right? just like a, a little, little, right? I think so. Actually, there's a whole psychological concept around this that I love, which is um, by this psychologist named Donald Winnicott, who came up with the term, a good enough mother. And the idea was, you want to be good enough that you're meeting your kids' needs, you know, enough of the time that they're not dealing with any really horrific problems, but you don't actually want to meet their needs all of the time because a perfect mother will not be preparing her child for an imperfect world. You know, like rather you have to drop the ball some of the time so that they can learn how to handle that, you know, being let down or things not going exactly their way. And then ideally you're there to come back and say, okay, wow, I dropped the ball. How was that for you? And what can we do to make sure you're okay? And, you know, so I'm all for that. I think you're crushing it as a mama. There's a whole thing (laughs) around creation and getting your creations out into the world when they're good enough instead of waiting for them to be perfect when you'll never release them and it'll never happen. And I really love thinking about that as applying to offspring. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, 
have kids when you're almost ready, I guess, versus fully. But, you know, there's all kinds of stuff out there of like, if the things you put out into the world don't embarrass you a bit, then you've waited too long to put them out. Like you should regularly be embarrassed by the things in your past or else you haven't been, you know, pushing yourself hard enough. Oh my God, this is so great. I am constantly embarrassed (laughs) by everything. You know what I, really? Me too. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I look back on my old talks and I'm like, oh girl, this is rough to watch, you know, but if I'd waited, then I never would have done it. Also, I watched all those old talks this week and was literally almost crying because it made me miss you and respect you and want you in my life so much and be glad I have you. I was like, what a fucking genius. So anyway, you can be embarrassed, but I sure wasn't. I was like, oh, Oh, look at my friend. Thank you. I was thinking about this, though, because I have perfectionist tendencies, but I get into stuff and I do them and I'm just a little like next, next, next. And then I was thinking a lot of people get stopped by embarrassment or fear and mine always comes after. I'm like, this seems like a great Mm. idea. And then I come home from that party and I'm like, what did I say? (laughs) Oh, my God. I've never related to anything that's been said more in my (laughs) life. Uh, like to me, I chalk it up to just being an impulsive ADHD kid who is like thinking a few steps ahead and not of the consequences, just of the you know validation I might get by this funny thing. And so I just relate to that so hard. There've been so many times I've come home and been like, "Ooh, wow. But you know, there's just not enough room in life to be overly focused on yeah. saving face. You know, like we just, we don't live long enough to to live our entire lives based on what'll protect us from some embarrassment. I don't have any face left anyway. (laughs) Actually, the ADHD thing is so funny because (laughs) my brother was diagnosed when I was 10 and then my parents got diagnosed and I got tested and I was, the story in my head was always, I got tested, but I told them I didn't want the results and they never got the results. And before we talked, I was like, mom, is this true? And she was like, what I remember is you got tested, you had ADD and they offered you drugs and you said no. And I was like, oh, okay. Good. God. Yeah. I used to throw my meds down the toilet and not tell my parents, you know, I just told them I was taking it and not. Cause like, I just didn't like it, you know, so I had to figure it out, figure out how to do it. So I can imagine that that might be true for you. Yeah. But that's why you're so much fun. I think it's a superpower because we're like living a few seconds in the future or something, always trying to keep things interesting for ourselves. And thus, I think we end up making things interesting for other people too. I was so anti that diagnosis when I was a kid because my family, because my family then all took Adderall and this is not an anti-medication speech but in my my family that really it was too much Adderall that going on that's a a thing (laughs) yeah in my house and I was like no and I feel glad that I did because I figured out how to make it work for me and it really has but it definitely was kind of a revelation now that I'm a grown-up that already figured out all of those things like being like oh yeah that just was probably true that whole damn time Mm-hmm. <laughs> 100%. Everything's yeah. a lot clearer in, in yeah. hindsight, for sure. And I've talked to a few people who say, who really think that their diagnosis of like ADHD, I'm going to talk to somebody who feels this way about dyslexia, that those things have helped them make humorous connections that other people aren't making. 
I feel that way. Like the, the party game that I'm really good at is taboo, which is where you have to describe a word in an unusual way. And I feel like my brain just can leap to really random places really quickly and easily. And so I can describe something in a total wackadoo manner for sure. Like I, that's part of the superpower I think of ADHD is I can, you know, I can be in a lot of places at once and go to really random, but usually related places. So I definitely think that's true. And then the other thing is if you grew up being told that you don't do things the right way, then you can probably speak to the part of every single one of us that wants to be shown that there's something about having been in a tough situation growing up that I think allows you to speak to that part of every person. And humor is one way to do that. Recognition is one of the reasons people laugh is when they recognize Mm -hmm. something their experience or a joke, if they're like, I get it. And even if ADHD or dyslexia or depression or bipolar disorder isn't your experience, things being hard because people don't get it is a shared experience. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. 100%. I get the sense you also are pretty good at taboo, judging by your face. So good at taboo. Um, (laughs) I used to have, you know, catchphrase. It's the same thing, but you have a word. And then I had a machine that did catchphrase. And the the game I would do all the time, and if I have anybody who knew me in high school that listens to this, they'll be like, oh, you mean when Abby carried around that catchphrase machine and pretended every word was yeast infection and had people guess (laughs) yeast infection. Oh my gosh. I didn't think I could love you anymore, but I think I do now. That is hilarious. So I'll say one other factor I think of my sense of humor is my parents are both physicians. My dad's a dermatologist and he would come home with these slides of like the nastiest shit you can imagine, like penis tumors and cysts that are exploding and all this nasty stuff. Gather around children. (laughs) Yes, literally. Emily. Like, look at these slides. And I became a person who not only could tolerate, but really finds fascinating the taboo stuff in in our world, the things that other people don't want to think or talk about sex and drugs and death and gross stuff and money, all the things people don't want to talk about. That's what I want to talk about. And that stuff's funny because we're all trying not to think about it too hard. Oh my God. I really, really love thinking that your path to being a big shot psychologist was that <laughs> your dad showed you pictures of penis tumors. Yeah. Shout out to you, dad. Really appreciated that one. And I still like, it's pretty hard to gross me out. It's pretty hard to embarrass me. And so, you know, I I think another thing about humor is you have to be willing to take risks and take a bunch of shots that might not land. And if you're a person who gets embarrassed easily, you might not do that. And since I don't have a whole lot of shame about that particular thing, you know, I've certainly had jokes fall super flat and it it doesn't derail me for too long. Like I'm down to try again. Uh, I love what you said earlier because I didn't think of it that way. I was like, why don't I remember all of the shame I have felt after I have said terrible, awful, embarrassing things? And you're like, oh, because it's the possibility of the payoff of (laughs) a laugh or affection. And I'm like, yeah, it's just out. It wins every time. I'm just like, I'll just try again. (laughs) I think about comics who are down to get on stage time after time and be booed or just totally not appreciated at all. But like you get the good laugh and that is like crack. You Mm got to just keep going for it. 
I started doing stand-up this year. <gasps> you did? Yeah. That makes me so happy. Is it on the internet? Can I find it? Will you do some for me? Um, I will totally – I'll do it for you anytime. Come to this room where I am in Denmark. I will do it for you. It's uh, Some of it's on – none of it's on the internet like openly. I'm still too embarrassed because it's after. But like going mm. up on stage and doing it feels really – easy but I think um, I'm so glad you're doing that just got to come to Denmark and I'll just do I'm it. so down to come to Denmark mm. how is like the culture of humor in Denmark are people funny and silly are they I feel I have an image in my mind of people being more serious and following the rules and you know being mean there's a big big rule following culture there's like a thing it's like a, a called yentalown which like it's like don't stick your head out too far like you got to be the same as everyone. But with that comes a real appreciation for silliness, mm. like naughty. I definitely think I ended up with Jon because his sense of humor, his da- very Danish sense of humor was like very surprised to find an American who made <laughs> dark jokes and jokes constantly. I like the Danish sense of humor. definitely. That's cool. Yeah. I feel like you and I bonded over like, it wasn't humor necessarily at people's expense, but it was humor about people. Mm -hmm. It was like poking fun at people being themselves, but in a loving way, you know, we mostly made fun of the people we loved, Mm -hmm. but I think, you know, people are weird and hilarious and hypocritical and ridiculous. And I feel like if you could point that out from a place of love, there's just endless humor to be gained from that. I really liked something you said about like fetishizing happiness in the mm. culture. And it's a fine line, right? I think I I take humor very seriously. I think laughter is really important. I think connecting through play is really important. But I, there's a fine line between it like being, I don't know, like snake oil. Mm. I think the problem comes when we're made to feel like that's the default place we're supposed to live, that we're supposed to be in this elevated state of happiness all the time. And then when people aren't, they're like, oh, something's wrong with me. I'm broken. Versus like, no, it it takes extra neurotransmitters to get to happiness. And you don't have those in an endless supply. At some point you have to revamp. And I think we spend most of our lives kind of in a more middle state. You know, even people who are really depressed and have a really hard time in life, there are big chunks of time that they're not depressed and that they feel okay. The tricky thing about depression is it's pretty good at convincing you that that's not the case and that you have mm. always felt that way and you always will feel that way. But really, when you see people tracking their day-to-day moods, people all across the spectrum tend to spend more time in the middle than on either of the extremes. And so my frustration with the fetishizing happiness thing is it's shaming. I think it makes people think there's something wrong with them when there isn't. Yeah. And if we were happy all the time, it wouldn't be special. There wouldn't be anything right. exquisite about it. Yeah, I think that what feels joyful to me is like making a discovery Hmm. in some way, like whether that's like about my kids or about me or noticing something new. And if I were in a constant state of discovery, I would be a puddle on the floor. Like I can't. Nothing worth having would be as great if it were a constant or guarantee. I mean, that's what they show with money, right? That like mm. the second you get used to having a certain amount of money, it doesn't bring you any joy. Actually, this makes me think of a conversation I had with someone who's from the Netherlands. We were talking about that study that came out that showed 
that, you know, if you make $70,000 a year, then any, you know, any more than that won't make you happier, right? Like if you're making less than that, then having more money will make you happy. But once you hit 70K a year, no amount of money above that will make you happier, right? So my friend and I are talking about this and I was like, so if we know this for a fact, then why isn't the minimum wage 70K? Like every single person should just be guaranteed to make that much money. And she's like, Emily, that's the most American thing I've ever heard in my life. And I was like, wait, what do you mean? And she's like, I think what that should mean is that no one should be allowed to make more than 70K, that there's no reason to hoard wealth if it's not actually doing anything for you. I was like, God damn, that's true. (laughs) I am an American. (laughs) Yeah, but like they're both right. Yeah, they're both right. I think there's sort of a greed mindset here that like more and more and more is always better. And that's not true. And it doesn't make you feel better to feel that way. If you're striving for, this is really funny because I'm going to sound like I'm making up Buddhism right now. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's see. <laughs> what did you invent? Basically what I invented is this thing I'm going to call Buddhism. <laughs> I bet that'll catch on. Yeah. I think yeah, people I are like going to like it. You got some Silicon Valley people. I can <laughs> get some s- seed money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love it. <laughs> You know, the like change and dollars come from within. So you'll just have to find them there. Change (laughs) and dollars. I have invested in myself time and time again. I will continue to do so. With healthy returns, I would imagine. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Why We Laugh. Thank you so much to Dr. Emily Ann Halt, who I met as E-Class at Camp Grounded in Mendocino, California, where we were counselors at camp for grown-ups. Thanks to Poddington Bear, who did the music in the intro, and also right now, what you're listening to right now. It's called Carefree to Careful. Thanks to Scott Holmes, who did the music in the voicemail ad. It's called Driven to Success. Thanks to our sponsors, Voicemail and Bigotry, who sponsored the Inflammatory Opinions DIY segment in our Craft Corner. Work on your mental health somehow. This is good for you. One way to do that is to check out Koa at joinkoa.com. 